Let us pray, if we could. God, I am I'm humbled to stand here and proclaim your word, and I ask for your grace and your mercy to go before us, Father, as we attempt to hear what you have to say to us this morning, Father. God, I pray that what we, what we say and what we think, what we write this morning would, would change us, Father. We'd be brought to a place where we just behold who you are and the greatness and glory and majesty and grace and love, mercy that we see in you, Father, would change who we are. God, as has already been said this morning, uh, may all of that point us towards Jesus. Because it's in his name that we gather, it's in his name that we pray, it's in his name that we worship you. Amen. So Psalm 103 is our psalm this morning, and uh, the reading that we did a little earlier is is what we're going to kind of look through, and um, all the stuff that that we spoke uh, together, and that's something you're going to see more of uh, in the days and weeks to come, where we we speak creeds like that, we speak scripture like that, and... uh, short, memorable ways. And so we're going to walk through each one of those statements this morning and, and examine closely what it is that, that we read and what it is that, that we spoke this morning. Um, Amy mentioned before she read Psalm 103, it's a, a quote from, from Gerald Wilson. He's a, a pastor in the Northeast in, I think it's New Hampshire. He says this to, to pastors, lead the church not simply in telling them how to behave, but in helping them to behold. And that's, that's the, the point of, of, of every sermon I hope that ever comes out of my mouth, and that's the point of, of Psalm 103. It's not telling you what to do, but instead showing you God and, and showing you the fullness of God in such a way that it begins to inform you and change you and, and shape the way you live and act and think and serve and love and forgive and be. And so that's the, the goal this morning is that we would behold God. And if you behold God, I, I want to say the goal this morning is to behold God and then that would change you. If you behold God, it will change you. There's, you you can't, can't get around that. I don't need to add that to the end of it. Just behold God. And so that's, and all of Psalms are, are like that, but Psalm 103 in particular just is everywhere in the psalm are two, three, four, five-word phrases that just blow up with beholding who God is. And so that's what I want to walk us through uh, this morning. Psalm 103, the, the first one. Um, let's, let's, I want to look to the screen first and uh, throw that, that next slide up there, Ben. Um, I just want to... Let's, can we read these together again? We're gonna, they're kind of in three stanzas, but I want to read this first one together because it, it really begins to get our minds focused. So let's, let's read this together. Uh, the Lord forgives my iniquities. The Lord heals my diseases. The Lord redeems my life from the pit. 
The Lord crowns me with steadfast love and mercy. The Lord satisfies me with good things. Now, each one of these statements don't show up specifically as they're written there in the psalm, but the the theme is there. And so I want to walk through each one of these statements and just let it sit on us for a while and let it think on us for a while. And, and this is one of, the, one of the biggest hopes for me as we walk out of this this morning is that some of these phrases would just stick with us. And, and Jeff mentioned it in the call to worship this morning is that's sort of the point of why we've been walking through these, these summer of Psalms is so that we can have these, these short sayings that just stick like a thorn in our brains and we can't get rid of them. And one of these ideas, one of these concepts would just sit with you uh, for a couple of hours to a couple of months to a couple of years and just you can't get past the beauty of all that's here. The first one there, the Lord forgives my iniquities. A couple of things to make note of there. First of all, if we spent a lot of time thinking about how sinful we are, if, if somehow we were able to, to have a list of the things that we've done wrong, there's, it's greater than we could ever imagine. Can we just walk through the rest of, of this time this morning understanding that we are more sinful than we could ever know. Um, and the Lord is forgiving those iniquities. I've done a lot of study on forgiveness, and this is the, this is the best definition that I've, I've seen. Forgiveness means ceasing to demand punishment or repayment. Think about the, the depth of your sin, and think about this idea of forgiveness, ceasing to demand punishment or repayment. Most of these times we think about God in, in respect of that, but I want to think about us in respect of that. Um, this, this might take a, a second for you to think about. I want you to, to imagine a time where someone in your life in the last week really, really angered you. Know what I mean? Maybe it was somebody as simple as in traffic. Maybe it was something as deep as your spouse. Maybe it was your boss. Maybe it was a coworker. Whatever. I want you to think about that. Think about a specific time in the last week where somebody made you angry. All right? And then I want you to think about how, what you did to deal with that. Chances are, I'm thinking, you went and you told somebody trusted. Maybe, maybe you went and told your spouse or your best friend or a roommate or... You can't believe what did. Anybody bold enough to say that was me this week? You see me raising my hand? Yeah. Or, or worse yet, we held that against somebody and decided, I'm just, I'm, I'm done. Or I'm going to get that person back. Or made life miserable for that person. There are iniquities that are committed against us all the time. And what we choose to do with those iniquities speaks a whole lot to how we've truly beheld what God does with ours. New Testament all over the place. If you don't forgive like your God has forgiven you, you will not be forgiven. That's, that's, ooh, that's really scary. We need to forgive like God forgives us. But here, the beautiful part about that is not about what we do with our forgiveness, but I, I bring you through that story to think about how awful and shameful we are when we're wronged. 
to show you the beauty of how amazing the forgiveness of God is. Consistently, consistently we sin against God. Even in the, like, I wrestle with this passage and, and wrestle with this idea of forgiveness all week and I still sin and, and struggle with the same stupid things. My mind is, is depraved. My flesh wants to serve me. There's never been a time this week when I've come to grips with my flesh that I wasn't forgiving. You can always count on Rick Nyhoff for a little, mm, yes. Yes, that's seriously. Behold the Lord. He has forgiven you. Behold the Lord. He has forgiven your iniquities. The next one. And this is, this is one that I'm going to get really excited. It's, it's fantastic. The Lord heals my diseases. Scholars believe that probably when David wrote this psalm, he was writing of a particular disease that he was healed of. Maybe he was just sick for a couple of weeks, and the Lord healed him of that, and he was feeling stronger. Scholars believe that. But scholars also believe that as he was writing this, he was writing metaphorically to the disease that's inside of us. I'm taking a seminary class, uh, New Testament 2. We're studying the, the second half of, of the New Testament, everything but basically the Gospels and Acts. And one of our assignments a couple weeks ago was to watch a movie uh, called Dead Man Walking. Have you guys ever seen that? It's like 15 years old, quite, quite some time ago. Susan Sarandon is a nun. Sean Penn is this rapist murderer who is on death row. And it's them, her leading him to redemption and, and repentance throughout the course of, of the thing. And in the end, um, he seeks out his redemption. All right? But through the, the course of the movie, we're learning about who Sean Penn's character is. And he is, we, we don't know for sure until the very end whether or not he committed the murder and the rape, but he's, he's proclaiming that it wasn't me. There was an older guy that was with me, and I wanted to be cool and tough. He did everything. I just watched. And he kept saying that over and over again. I didn't do anything. I just watched. And, and so as you're walking through the relationship of, of the nun and, and the rapist murderer getting to know each other and, and walking through that, you begin to realize that Sean Penn is just, his character is just a grotesque human being. He is a racist. He is a bully. He is a murderer. He, is, he, he tries to sexually come on to Susan Sarandon's nun character. And it's just, he's just an awful awful human being, and they, they have flashbacks to who he was before he was in prison. He's just, just a terrible, terrible human being. So at the end, he comes to this redemption, and, and he's, he, he confesses that, he's, that it's been, it was him that did these deeds, and, and that he needs forgiveness. And, and he says, as, as he's dying, he, he wishes that his death would bring some peace to the families of those that he's, he's killed. And, and it's, it's a beautiful instance of just forgiveness and repentance and and owning up to what he did and looking for this redemption. But the last, as he, he stands up from his cell to, to take the walk to the, where he's going to get the lethal injection, he, he says, um, I'm done with this. No more bars, no more cells, no more life in a cage. And as, as I watch that scene, he's saying, 
I'm done with this. No more bars, no more cells, no more life in a cage. As he says that, my mind is taken by this idea. The Lord heals my diseases. And I'm not talking about a cold or cancer or the Lord. The disease that the Lord has healed in all of us is the disease of sin. And there will come a day when we stand from our prison cell and walk towards our death where we will no longer be held by a cage. No longer be held by... I'm done with this. See, our, our bodies are sinful and I have a flesh in me. I've confessed it before you already. And, and we've talked about our own flesh already. We are trapped in this fleshly body with sin that entangles us and trips us. And so are you. And yours rubs up against mine and mine rubs up against yours. And we get angry at people. We get angry at our, our spouse, our children, our, our, our co-workers, our best friends, our, our parents, our children. We get angry and we, we sin with that anger many times. And this earth is broken. It has earthquakes and tornadoes and just awful, miserable stuff that's, that's entangling us. One day, we will be finally freed from our disease. The Lord heals our disease. That is something that I would, like, the hope that we have is coming. And, and last night, if you follow me on Twitter, I tweeted this out, that there's nothing quite as amazing as realized purpose. Here on this planet, for me, to be a husband, to be a dad, to be a pastor, that's purpose for Rick. And there's nothing quite as amazing for Rick as being able to be those things. When I read scripture to my wife as we're going to bed, when I parent my children, when I show them the gospel, when I get to stand before you and preach like I'm doing right now, that's realized purpose. And for my soul, there's nothing as amazing for me than to be those things. But that's, that's an earthly, fleshly purpose. The real purpose of our creation the real purpose that, that your soul exists is to know God unencumbered. And we will realize that purpose one day. We know it in part now. We'll know it in full when we enter the kingdom of heaven. When we read the phrase, the Lord heals my diseases, we know it in part now, we'll know it in full later. And I hope that this is this Notion, the thoughts that God is placing in your head at this moment, stick with you. And you'll hear this phrase, the Lord heals my diseases. And when you encounter someone on this earth who has an awful, wretched disease, you'll think about the Lord healing your disease. You'll think about the purpose that you will one day realize. And you'll think about the purpose that you today, in part, realize. There's nothing as amazing as realized purpose. The next statement, the Lord redeems my life from the pit. Again, we talked about it already, broken people in a broken world doing broken things to one another. Takes us to the pit, brings us to separation from God. Our sin, our iniquities, the, the gross sin that's in me and the gross sin that's in you and how we rub against each other and, and the brokenness of this world bring our lives to the pit. But the Lord, the Lord, your Lord redeems you from that. 
redeems. Study that word this week. Redeems means restored to its intended purpose. A wrong made up for, paid for, or fulfilled. It's restored to its intended purpose. Our intended purpose is to be with God unencumbered. The Lord redeems us from that, from the pit. We are in the pit, and the Lord redeems us, restores us to our original purpose. This is God. Behold your God. So many times, I think, like, the, the relentlessness of time, like it's over and over and over again. No matter how hard you try, tomorrow is going to be Monday. You can't stop today and be in today forever. The re- time is, is relentless. And the relentlessness of time be- begins to be methodical and monotonous. And you, like every day of the week, you do something different. And Sunday is church day and, and you come and, and it begins to get monotonous. And, and I want to proclaim to us, to shake us from the doldrums of the relentlessness of time, to understand that this is your God before you. Seeking, pursuing, suffering, laboring to show you himself. Speaking these words to David so that he could write them down and then persevering them throughout all these generations, thousands of years later, so that we might be affected by this idea that our lives may be in the pit, but the Lord is restoring that, redeeming that, bringing that to its fulfilled intended purpose. Next one, the Lord crowns me with steadfast love. I've read that phrase a lot and heard that phrase a lot in like old church music stuff, crown him, and the word, that, that phrase crown him or crowns him appears a lot. I've never really understood what it means to be crowned with something, but the nuance of this word in the Hebrew is this. You're just surrounded at all times. There's never a time when you're not surrounded by whatever it is that it's saying you're crowned with. The idea is a king, when the crown is placed on his head, he's king forever. He's crowned with that majesty. All right? When it says we are crowned with steadfast love and mercy, it means literally that there is never a time where you're not completely surrounded, completely in ownership of, the steadfast love of the Lord and his mercy. Think about the beauty of that. I heard a quote this week. Darren Patrick said, there is, you will never be more loved by God than you are right now. Think about that. And that's, ultimately this is, that quote is an exegesis of this verse. It's just deep thinking about this verse. You are crowned with steadfast love. Means, You will never, ever be loved by God more than you are right now. And if we chase that a little further, you will never, ever be more loved for God at every moment of your life. Even in the middle of your sin, even in the middle of the commission of your sin, if you are crowned with steadfast love, as this scripture teaches us, you are never, ever more loved by God. That's something that we have to preach to ourselves. That's something that has to allow us to rise up out of our sin and continue pressing towards God. 
You are crowned with steadfast love. Let's say that together. I am crowned with steadfast love. I am crowned with steadfast love. Man. The next one, the Lord satisfies me with good things. I don't know if you're like me. There's nothing quite as good as being satisfied. About this verse, an ancient British pastor named John Gill says this, The Lord satisfies with the good things in the hands of Christ, with the fullness of grace in him, with pardon, righteousness, and salvation by him, with the good things of the Spirit of God, his gifts, his graces, graces, with the provision of the Lord's house, the goodness of it. When we read, when we see, when we preach to ourselves that the Lord satisfies me with good things, we're talking about Christ. All that he is, all that he was, all that he gives to us is meant to satisfy your soul because the purpose of our existence is to know God. And all of our longings, all of our thirstings, everything that we've ever wanted is rooted and found in this idea that Jesus satisfies. You're craving for companionship. Jesus satisfies. You're craving for purpose. Jesus satisfies. You're craving to do something with yourself, with your life. Jesus satisfies. Every craving that we have is rooted in this idea that it can be found in God. And Jesus satisfies it. The next stanza of our reading, the first one, he works righteousness and justice. This statement is reflective of how God has has always and continually provided for his people. Um, Most notably, this idea, this concept is found in Moses and the Passover that when somebody jacks with God's people, God deals with them. All right? Pharaoh enslaved God's people for 40 years and Moses went to him and said, would you let my people go? He said, no, God brought a plague. He went to him again. Would you let my people go? He says, no, he brought a plague. And finally, after the 10th time that happens, the Passover happened. And the Passover is God working out his righteousness and his justice for his people. I don't know if you know what, that, what, what happened there, but God's people, they, if, you had, if you were one of God's people, you smeared lamb's blood over your door. And anybody in that town who did not have a lamb's blood smeared across their door, their firstborn son was killed that night. God is not to be trifled with. And this is the God that is your justice, your protector. This is the God that is pressing life through for you. He is guiding and protecting you, working righteousness and justice. Those who mess with you will be dealt with. Maybe not in the moment, the timing that you're looking for, but God will deal with them. 
He is also merciful and gracious. He is merciful and gracious. The, the beautiful part about this language here, that he is mercy. He is grace. Mercy, this Hebrew word is translated specifically as this word compassion. To have care, to show care. But the, there's, there's more to it than that. This is how the nuance for this is this care and compassion that moves you to action. Here's, here's the, the illustration that I find for this. Uh, my, my wife is, is really intense about this. When we walk past somebody on the street, obviously homeless, and they're asking for something, she always seeks to feed them. To give, we're never giving them money. He said, she'll, she'll say to them, you've probably even, some of you girls I know have been with her when they're, when they're out. She'll say, stay here, I'll be back. And she'll bring a sandwich to them. And that, this word mercy is that. Not just that I care for you, I have compassion for you, but I have compassion for you to such an extent that I'm going to go and do something to meet a need that you have. And, and this is the beautiful part. That there's never a time... There are times when just life is pressing where, where we don't stop and, and bring a sandwich back to the homeless guy. There is never a time when God's compassion, God's mercy, doesn't act. Never a time. That's why, all throughout the New Testament in particular, Jesus is always talking about, and in the Old Testament as well, God is attracted to those who are in need. Because God is mercy. Because God is compassion. Mercy is an act, but God is mercy. There's never a time when he sees us in need where his, the character trait of who he is does not respond to our need. Live in that. Behold your God. He is mercy. He's not just mercy. He's also grace. This idea is he is, what he has in excess, he is begging to give away. Here's a perfect example. Where we sit right now, Floors and Presbyterians Fellowship Hall, Harmon Hall, we sit here. This is a grace that they have given to us, extended to us. They have this room in excess. If we weren't here for the last couple of years, this room, most Sundays, would be empty. It's an excess They see it as an excess, they found a need, and they gave it away. That's grace. For us, it's a great example. You see those tables back there? Everybody turn around. You see those tables back there? Those tables, when we clear all this out, we're going to put them out. Because they're going to come and have lunch here. There's some more tables back there. By the way, when the music ends, we got stuff to do. This is us, out of our excess, we've got... Nobody's got something so pressing that they've got to they get out of here. Like we can come and use what God has given to us in excess. Energy, strength. Let's go and move these tables. This is the body helping the body. This is us acting like God. And this is the illustration of the grace of God. What he has in excess, he's freely willing to give away. This is your God. He is mercy. He is grace. 
He also abounds in steadfast love. He abounds in steadfast love. You know, this idea of abounding, he, it, it cannot lessen. It cannot exhaust. Told the story, I'm going to tell it again, about the, the bag of, of donuts, right? You guys remember that a few weeks ago? Like, Hostess Donuts, they're back, by the way. Um, and, like, in my house, Mia loves to have donuts, and she has two at a time. And whenever there's a full bag of donuts, I feel free to have a bunch. Vagueness, very intentional. I feel free to have a bunch. When there's three left, I know for Mia she needs two. That means I can only have one. Because the bag of donuts will exhaust. The love of your God, look at me. The love of your God never, ever, ever, ever exhausts. It abounds. There's never a time when that bag of donuts isn't completely full. It's silly, but it's perfect. It's beautiful. This is your God. This is your God. In the middle of your sin, in the middle of you choosing yourself, in the middle of of you just pouting about what's going on in your world and what's going on in your life, in the middle of of a war between you and your spouse, in the middle of, of a war between you and your boss, in the middle of everything, in the middle of anything, in the middle of the storms of life, The love of the Lord abounds. You are crowned. You are surrounded by it. This is your God. Behold him. He will not always chide or keep his anger forever. This is one that's a little bit hard. The last one was was very sweet and pretty. We want to throw a parade for the love of God. This one a little harder. He will not always chide. That means sometimes he will chide. What, is, what does it mean to chide? I don't know. But I think it has something to do with like discipline and, and, and like, like if I were to, to chide Cooper, he's getting a spanking. That's, what, that's the, the idea. He will not always chide or keep his anger forever. That means it, in times it is there. But if the love of God and the grace and mercy of God are always present and always true, then his, his chiding of us, his anger for us, has to be guiding us to something. Has to be guiding us to that something is more pure, unencumbered relationship with him. And he's teaching us endurance, building our character as he shows us his anger, as he chides us. And as we are in the middle of that, we have to, in the middle of, of the process of his anger, of his chiding, we have to remember, we have to have it in front of us that it's, one, it's not forever, and two, he abounds in steadfast love. Bring people alongside of you to walk with you through these times of anger and chiding to press us through that. The last one here, he does not deal with us according to our sins. This phrase, I've explained this before, according to. He does not deal with us according to. Because of what our sins are supposed to do, God is supposed to deal with them in a particular way. That is, bring discipline to us 
all the time, to bring death to us. That is what is supposed to be the result of our sin, according to our sin. But because of who he is, his steadfast love, his mercy, his grace, all of those things, he does not deal with us according to our sin. Every time I think about this, I think about my house. I live in a house. I could never, ever afford to give my wife the kitchen that she has. Beautiful new stove, beautiful new cabinets, none of that. We, she was going to have to deal with these ugly, awful metal cabinets that are just miserable just in this tiny kitchen for the rest of her life. We couldn't give, I couldn't give that to her. Every time she's in there baking, I think to myself, the Lord does not deal with us according to what's in us. Every time I walk into my front door and I see the perfectly painted walls, the clean lines, the archways, and everything is brand new. I, I could never afford to give that to myself. I'm going to live in a 60-year-old house the rest of my life that's falling apart. The plaster walls just literally falling apart. But because of a hardship of this tornado that attacked my house, destroyed it, made us live someplace else for nine months, I now experience something that I could have never gained of my own. This is your God. What you deserve is what your sins get you. What you deserve is a plaster house that falls apart in a kitchen that's awful and falling apart. What you deserve is that. What you have is perfect relationship with a holy God who satisfies every longing you could ever have. What you deserve and what you get. The grace and mercy. This, your God, beholds your God. Behold your God. Next time you walk into my house, look around and behold your God. The last five are quick. The rest of these are notions. They're similar. They're all very similar. They deal with the big picture. They deal with eternal things. And reading them and preaching them to ourselves, reminding ourselves to push these things to the forefront of our mind. Let's read them quickly and allow them to just sit in our heads. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love towards those who fear him. You ever get in an I love you match with one of my kids? I love you times two. Well, I love you times two more than that. Well, I love you times two more than that. Well, I love you times two more. Just like it'll go on forever until you decide to stop. I love you more. I love you more. I love you most. Well, how can you love me most when I love you more? I can't, I can't, that just doesn't exist. Well, I love you more. I don't care what you say. And so these arguments happen all the time. This is your God. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove my transgressions. This is a, a silly little illustration here about east and west and north and south. Like, I used it in the seventh grade when I was teaching seventh graders. But we could all walk to a place called the North Pole. We could all walk there. We could all walk to a place called the South Pole, the southernmost point of the earth. We could never, if we start walking east, we will never, ever stop walking east. Do you realize that? If you start walking west, you'll never, ever stop walking west. If you start walking north, there's going to come a time where you start walking south. You can reach that destination. 
If you start walking east, you're going to keep walking east. As far as the east is from the west, so far does the Lord remove your sins from you. Live in that. Here's the the thing. If you're reminded of your sin, if you think that your sin affects you, if you think that your sins are, are being counted against you, that's Satan lying to you. Because God has removed them. He has put them away. They're gone. They're history. They don't exist. Don't allow the enemy to lie to you. His steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. That's a big phrase, from everlasting to everlasting. I can't even get my mind around it. But that's his steadfast love is beyond our comprehension. He has established his throne in the heavens. He has established his throne in the heavens. One day we will be there. His kingdom rules over all. There's nothing that God's kingdom does not rule over. Our God is eternal. Our God has separated our sins from us. His love will never stop or never lessen. His kingdom lasts forever. He is in complete control. This is your God. Behold him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that you've brought us to this morning, Father. God, I pray for each one of us in this room that we would connect with at least one truth and just be amazed and overwhelmed by it for many weeks to come, Father. Guide us now as we respond to your truth. God, give us the grace that's needed to respond to your truth. Allow us to respond to our beholding you, Father, and change us. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who brings all of these things into our midst and into our presence and allows us to think about them, to deal with them, to own them. In Christ's perfect name, amen.